Hi, this is Chris McGregor. The work of Discerning Hearts really could not continue without your prayers and support. Between now and December 31st, please consider making a year-end tax-deductible gift to Discerning Hearts. We are a 501c3 not-for-profit organization. Your donation is fully tax-deductible to the extent permitted by law. Click the Donate button on DiscerningHearts.com or inside the Discerning Hearts free app. Your generous support will allow us to continue producing the type of spiritual formation programming you have come to expect from us. Please prayerfully consider supporting our mission, which is dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. Thank you, and God bless from all of us at Discerning Hearts. Ignatius Press and the Augustan Institute present The Formed Book Club. Catholic book lovers unpacking good books chapter by chapter. If you like us, please help us by subscribing and by reviewing us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you might listen. And don't forget to sign up for weekly updates and study questions at formedbookclub.ignatius.com. Welcome back to the Formed Book Club, where Joseph Pierce, Vivian Dudrow, and I will speak again about Chesson's wonderful book, In Defense of Sanity, The Best Essays J.K. Chesson, we are traveling slowly through this book, but enjoyably, because there's so much to comment on for each essay. We are now on page 225 with the essay, Magic and Fantasy in Fiction. And when I read this the first time, I said, okay, I'm going to let Vivian and Joseph talk about this because they're the literate persons here who know a lot about literature. But I read it again this morning. And actually, there's, there's more in there than there's literature. And especially, the, the I, I would say, I would summarize it by saying, the mass is not magic. But I would like the two of you to carry on a conversation about this, and let me, let me listen. Well, I'll defer to, to Vivian in the first instance. Well, since defining our terms is so important, ah. as we've all pointed out on other occasions, you know, let's let's look at what Chesterton says magic is. And uh, on page 225 in the middle there, um, the word magic was widely used as a term of abuse because it was really a question of abuse in more senses than one. Magic was the abuse of preternatural powers by lower agents whose work was preternatural but not supernatural. It was founded on that profound maxim of Diabolus Simius Dei, the devil is the ape of God. Magic was a monkey trick of imitation of the divine functions, and there was therefore nothing stranger in either the similarity or the dissimilarity. But to talk of the higher mysteries or miracles as forms of magic, back to Father's point about the mass, is to reverse the whole story. It is as if we were to say that the black mass gradually evolved into the mass and so on. So this idea that magic is actually an abuse of powers not belonging to the people abusing it. And I wondered, Father, if maybe you could help us out with some of these terms like preternatural, supernatural. and Well, yes. Uh, supernatural means above any nature. And only, only God is supernatural. And we become supernatural by participating through adoption in his life. But only God is totally above all natures. But between us as humans and God, there are other natures which are 
not natural in terms of our nature, created nature, human nature, and not supernatural, but preternatural. Beyond the natural, preter means beyond or above, you know. Uh, and so angels are preternatural. And they're the only preternatural beings which we know about, but probably the only ones. That is pure spiritual beings, no bodies. And of course, angels come in two classes. Well, they come in nine choirs, of course, but two classes. One, those who remain faithful to God and those who uh, opposed and rejected God, whom we call devils uh, or fallen angels. So his point is that we human beings may be tempted to either pretend we're God or to actually use real powers, real powers that are beyond our nature, like satanic powers, in order to gain control on things which you shouldn't have control over. Is that? Yeah, that's very helpful. Okay. What, what, do you, what would you like to add to that, Joseph? Well, first thing I would say um, is uh, that I highlighted exactly the same passage as you just read uh, from page 12 to 25. But I wanted to comment on the frustration I feel that there's no overlap uh, between Chesterton and Tolkien and Lewis. Um, now Lewis's uh, uh, first book, um, first literary book, uh, Progress Regress, was published the year after this. But there's no there's no evidence of Chesterton ever reading any Lewis. And, was the Lord of the Rings, sorry, The Hobbit was published a year after Cheston died. But what I find very interesting is that Cheston's discussion of magic here is very similar to the way that uh, Lewis and Tolkien understand magic uh, in the cosmos and therefore in their subjugated world. So this is the, exactly why, you know, that, uh, that Tolkien says that we should not think, consider elves to be magic or hobbits to be magic, even though we might use that word. It's an inappropriate word because the correct word for magic is based on this definition that Chester's giving here. I loved also his uh, exploration of the meaning of the word enchantment. Yes. And, and how, um, well, before he gets into enchantment, he points out, okay, so magic is the abuse of preternatural powers and, and aping God's power, trying to ape God's power. And vis-a-vis and -vis human beings, you know, there's a deception going on here, right, that through magic we're like God. In fact, we're just trying to imitate him, but in doing so we're abusing ourselves and others and the natural order. And that this leads to what? It leads to slavery. And, and, and Chesterton uh, nails that and then says that enchantment even though the word has become, I'm enchanted to meet you and this kind of thing, right. enchanté, the French Some say. enchanted evening. Yeah, all of that, okay. <laughs> but really, if you look at enchantment in the old stories, right, um, it means to be a captive. You know, if you're under some kind of enchantment or spell, you know, you're like the uh, that fairy story of the swans who are actually brothers or you know they're 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 now uh forced to be into a form that is not their own and they're they're enslaved or entrapped and that miracle it's the opposite of magic or enchantment because miracles the miracles performed by christ freed the person from some kind of bondage whether bondage to illness or bondage to evil spirits or whatever so i just thought this was such a brilliant essay so illuminating yeah, and I think that the, the what you've just said, you know, summarizing and encapsulating what Chesterton says, I think is actually encapsulated by Chesterton himself in the final 10 or so lines, beginning at the bottom of page 230, the conclusion of the essay. The magician is the man when he seeks to become a god. 
and being a usurper can hardly fail to be a tyrant. Not being the maker, but only the distorter, he twists all things out of their intended shape and imprisons natural things in unnatural forms. But the mass is exactly the opposite of a man seeking to be a god. It is a god seeking to be a man. It is God giving his creative life to mankind as such and restoring the original pattern of their manhood, making not gods, nor beasts, nor angels, but by the original blast and miracle that makes all things new, turning men into men. Absolutely. All right. I underlined that too, because that, that's a beautiful mm-hmm. summary, you know, of what he said here is that, yes. you know, that there's two kinds of magic. We try and control God or we or God actually comes to be one of us. Yeah, I mean, and the first half there is, again, very much in harmony with, with characters such as Sauron and Saruman uh, in The Lord of the Rings. I mean, there's definitely a dovetailing of, of Tolkien and, and Chesterton and their understanding of magic. But I love turning men into men in the understanding that Jesus, of course, that Christ is the perfect man. So insofar as we become Christ-like, we're actually becoming more fully human. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's absolutely, yes, yeah, it's, 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 it's a... It's a marvelous way of ending a marvelous essay. And it's so important, uh, particularly now, of course, the trends we're seeing, as we've seen in so many of these essays, the trends that Chesterton was noting are the same things that we have now, only more so. And so the the trend in especially children's literature uh, to to make magic seem as though it's it's a neutral force that can be used for either good or evil. So now it... The only thing that matters is your intention, not that you're actually grasping at powers that you've got no business playing around with. And that this has led to all kinds of um, confusion in the minds of young people. And even worse than that, um, our local exorcists will tell you that some of the trouble they're seeing among young people is that they've been dabbling in black arts because of the encouragement they've gotten for this from various entertainments for kids. And they end up, yeah, enslaved to something and need, need the, the, the sacramental power of the church through Christ's well, power ask, to get out. You two, you're both parents and you're both, you know, literate liter in the sense of being well-versed in literature. I would like you to comment on three different literary works. Lord of the Rings, what's, what's Rowland's thing? Uh, Harry Potter. Her, Harry Potter. Harry Potter. And then the third thing. Is that North, uh, the guy who was purposely satanic? Oh, um, Pullman. The, yes. uh, the, Philip, Philip uh, Pullman. Philip Pullman, the Golden Compass and that sort right. of thing. So, right. So how, how would you compare those three expressions of kind of more than natural powers, let's put it that way? Well, I, I, I think Vivian's already touched upon it, about the fact that magic is reduced to being a tool uh, for empowerment. Um, and as long as your intentions are, are, are good, in other words, relativistic, um, then you can use those powers legitimately. Uh, and you certainly see that Philip Pullman deliberately is trying to be the anti-C.S. Lewis. He said as much. Um, uh, J.K. Rowling is a little bit more complex because at least last time I read, she was a believing Christian of the Church of Scotland. But of course, that a believing Christian of the Church of Scotland is going to be sort of a, a modernist pseudo-Christian, and I think that comes 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 through in the Harry Potter books, where there's a sort of vague Christianity, but there's an illicit, uh, illicit uh, 
means to uh, to the purported good end. Um, and then, of course, the, the Tolkien, he understands his Catholicism. Uh, there's, this, there's this definite difference between that which is natural, that which is preternatural, and that which is supernatural. Uh, the powers of Gandalf are angelic. Um, um, but the powers that are used by Saruman and, and, and Sauron are actually the same thing as alchemy, essentially trying to dominate and usurp the power of nature in order to dominate and usurp uh, power over men. Mm-hmm. I think that sums it up pretty well. All right, then I have a further an add-on question to you two literary scholars here. Uh, you've talked about in Tolkien the preternatural powers, the elder law, the ins and so on. In the Lord of the Rings, is there any supernatural power? Well, it, it, it is, but very subsumed in this. In insofar as uh, that, we know from from elsewhere uh, that Gandalf is a Maiar who's uh, an angelic being. But you wouldn't know that from the text of the Lord of the Rings. You're only that extra textually if you read other other parts of Tolkien's Legendarium. So, if you're informed extra textually. Uh, as opposed to extraterrestrially, um, then then you you'll um, you'll know that when when Gandalf says the bridge of Khazad Doom and he's fighting the Balrog, who's also a, an angelic but a demon, when he says I am a servant of the secret fire, Tolkien says elsewhere, and I believe also in one of his letters that the secret fire is the Holy Spirit. But you only know that if you've got this extra textual dimension going on. You wouldn't necessarily know that purely from the text of the, of the Lord of the Rings taken uh, by itself. We'll return to the Form Book Club with Father Joseph Fezio, Vivian Dudreau, and Joseph Pierce in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. A Prayer of St. Ignatius of Loyola Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, 
or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to The Formed Book Club with Father Joseph Bezio, Vivian Dudrow, and Joseph Pierce. I think that there's also the implied uh, existence of the supernatural God in that no matter what evil is trying to do in the world, something greater than evil is also at work that ultimately triumphs. And so, um, but that's, that's an implied thing, but that's actually more like our world, right? It's more like reality that God is real. He, he, he's constantly doing good because that's all God can do is good. And no matter how much evil intent is going on in the world, good is going to come. Uh, and, and we might have to be engaged in the struggle and that's actually bringing about our good, our, our, our purification, our perfection, our, you know, and so, but to have this confidence that Tolkien puts in the Lord of the Rings, which I think is to help us have confidence is that no, God creates, God is good. Whatever is trying to mess that up, isn't going to win. And it's it it completely not the uh, encapsulated by the words of Samwise Gamgee. And one of the darkest moments in 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 in, in, uh, in, in the in the work as they're entering Mordor, he says, "Above all shadows rides the sun." I mean, that as a metaphor uh, is 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 exactly it. Above all evil, there is the light, and the light is God Himself. And of course, it is the light of Galadriel in that file, which actually, you know, again, from the Silmarillion, is angelic light that, that staves off the demonic Shelob, you know. So, so yeah, it's there. There's miraculous powers from God, but it's all in, in, in no more um, overt than the miraculous powers from God we see perhaps in Marian apparitions in, in our world. So I agree that there's no intertextual explicit reference to God of the supernatural, but that it is clearly implied. And unlike a Greek tragedy or comedy where Moira or fate is kind of overseeing all things, uh, there's the, I, I have marked him in my copy of this thing. There's often references to, we're part of a story. Yes. Well, you know, you can't be in a story unless the storyteller. That's right. Exactly. You know, or the idea of providence. I mean, the hope, the, the secure and certain hope that yes, good will prevail. I mean, that's not materialism. That's not fate. That's belief in that's a right. higher power who is in charge. Because the question, who is the Lord of the Rings? Who is the Lord? Wow. You've well, got well, yeah. people trying to be Lord, but are they really? Right. And in the, the ultimate, end? Yeah, you're right. Right? The ultimate Lord of the Rings is the Lord himself. That's right. Although the Lord of the Rings, Sauron, thinks he's the Lord of the Rings, ultimately he isn't. That's absolutely, absolutely it. And then just to remind ourselves, I say this so many times, and I'm never tired of saying it, you know, the authorial authority, Tolkien himself said, the Lord of the Rings is, of course, a fundamentally religious and Catholic work. So our, our job is to work out how, because you know, the author knows it, he wrote it, right? Our question is the question, to discover that dimension to the work. 
Well, I've often used the metaphor of a kaleidoscope. Do they still exist? When I was a kid, you know, you had these things, you looked through them, and they had all different kinds of patterns. But what you had inside was broken glass, right? But as you twisted it, you got different patterns. Well, I think what Tolkien did, I mean, not intentionally did this, but this is what happened, is you took the fullness of Catholic truth, the sacraments, you know, God, the incarnation. Angels. Yeah, you know, angels, apostles. And he broke those up into shards and spun around the kaleidoscope and made different patterns. But, you know, what's the way bread after all? You know, you know, why is the fellowship, you know, inaugurated on December 25th? You know, why, why are they at Mount Doom on March 25th? Or is it vice versa? I one of the two anyway. I mean, things destroyed on March 25th. They leave Rivendell on December 25th. Okay. Yeah. And, and, uh, oh, just a coincidence, right? <laughs> and and uh, but I also like to like to caution people when they start looking for these oh, yeah. uh, connections and 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 relationships and whatever that some of it obviously the author is 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 conscious of and doing deliberately. But if all of that is part of the author's internal interior life and the way he sees reality, a lot of it is coming out in in the story almost unconsciously. Like, you know, I, I know when I'm writing myself, you know, I'll, I'll get several pages in and I go back and I realize, wow, look at that metaphor. And at the time that I was writing, I wasn't even really aware I was making a metaphor. But all of that is the raw material that, that, that I'm using to create a story or just tell a story. And so, um, so yes, Tolkien has this uh, both deliberate and conscious, but then also just who he is and unconscious. And then let's not forget that the Holy Spirit of God himself is the one writing the word world. He's writing the world and we're part of the story he's writing. So to, to actually, again, the, the, to continue that quote from Tolkien, which completely and utterly uh, accentuates what you just said, the complete quote from Tolkien uh, is the Lord of the Rings is of course, a fundamentally religious and Catholic work unconsciously at first, consciously in the revision. So, you know, you that it, it's, it's the dotting of the I's and the crossing of the T's was the conscious part, but the actual storytelling itself was unconscious. And you are correct. There's sometimes, when, you know, even someone like me that can't write anywhere near as well as Tolkien, sometimes you read something you've written and you, you can't believe you wrote it because it's so good. And the point is, <laughs> because there, there, there is a dimension, you know, that is, there is supernatural. There's the gifts coming in. And that's why it's not, you know, if we were too conscious, we would not actually write as well. Because that's right. we've got to let the Holy Spirit, we've got to let the grace do the work, right? Well, so like Lewis also, they thought that, he, some people thought, well, he wanted to write moral, morality tales for children, so he had these, these concepts in mind and he created a story. No, he said, I had an image. I had an image of a snow falling by a lamppost or Paralandra. I had an image of... You know, island floating on, floating oh, on the sea. You're talking about Lewis and, and the Chronicles of Narnia. Yeah. And, and I'm glad you brought Lewis and, and Narnia up because he, too, like Tolkien, of course, we know they were friends. He, too, gets the magic right in, in his stories. And, and if yes. you look carefully at this, diff, this very careful distinction, preternatural, supernatural, who are the beings exercising which powers because that's their nature to do so? And who are the beings usurping powers yeah. in order to be lord and master over others and he's got it right too and a lot of these uh people getting onto the fantasy bandwagon they are confused they are spiritually confused they are morally confused it comes out in their work 
and it, 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 it helps to be discerning if you're a parent of children. Um, yes, read this essay <laughs> to help you be more discerning and picking read the, literature. Read the, Lord of the Ring, read the Lord of the Rings, read the Chronicles of Narnia, but tread very carefully elsewhere. It's true. You do have, you do, mu you must. And let them be a, a model or something against which you measure everything else because of the way they've done this. And then not only that, but it wasn't as if Lewis and Tolkien were just great writers. I mean, fiction, but they wrote essays and they reflected on things. And Lewis and Tolkien is on fairy stories, on fairy tales, and Lewis is on stories. Crystallizes this, you know, and, and conceptualizes it, which is a much weaker form. Yeah. But at least you know that it wasn't simply by chance that they did what they did. That's right. Uh, In fact, I highly recommend. I highly recommend. Sorry, sorry, Vivian. I was just going to say, I highly recommend people look those up on stories. Yeah, I, I was. I was actually going to say, as as you give me the opportunity to promote the uh, the uh, uh, subscribe part of my personal website. <laughs> <laughs> We're currently doing, I'm currently doing, going through Tolkien's essay on fairy stories, um, and, and Tolkien's philosophy of myth, I and mean, we've just, just recorded part six. So if anybody wants to go deeper, then they, that's the one place they can do it. Is Very that good. an advertisement? <laughs> what advertisement? You... That, was a com that was a commercial break. <laughs> what, what is the correct pronunciation, Joseph? Is it advertisement or advertisement? It's advertisement, obviously, part of that. <laughs> well, I remember... My father used to work for Pan American Airways, which was international only at the time. It didn't travel, you know, within the United States. And so I, I was in college and I wanted to visit England for the very noble purpose of watching a basketball game. No, of only going to England to get back to, to New York so I could watch a basketball game with, our, with Santa Clara University. And I was on what's called a ferry flight, not F-A-E-R-I-E, -E, but F-E-R-R-Y. Uh, which is an empty flight going from uh, San Francisco, no, going from uh, London to New York. And a bunch of these English stewardesses were there. And uh, they talked about, oh, oh that, that was that's a missile. I said, missile? That's a missile. <laughs> well, no. Well, how do you say projectile? Projectile. <laughs> well, how do you say automobile? Motor car. <laughs> <laughs> They're ready to stick to their pronunciation. I mean, Susanna, Susanna still tells all of her friends that after 20 years, she's still learning English as a second language. So there we are. There you go. All right. Well, let's, let's continue a little bit here. The next chip, by the way, but to sum up, as you both have done well, but I'll say my part here is that this is a good analysis of what magic really is, the, the false form and the true form. And so I, I think... For magic and literature, uh, this is the lodestone. You should read this. And uh, All right. The next chapter is on the new prudery. And I have nothing to say about this. Well, I, ha I, ha I, I have in theory loads, but I can, we can, I can say as much as little as we, as we like. So, uh, but I'll, I'll defer well, say, to say, well, say something. Well, as a nice segue from the last piece to this one, you know, on the top of his list of elements of the new prudery is the child must never read fairy tales or be allowed yeah, to hear about that. fairies, right? Yes. And and so, uh, you know, you really that makes you really step back. Like, what does that have to do with prudery? What 
what is he talking about? You know, the child must never hear of the very existence of fighting in any form. The child must be strictly guarded from the shameful rumor that there's such a thing as religion or religious beliefs. This is, he's saying this is the new prudery, this kind of uh, cutting off the child from reality. And people will say, well, wait a minute, how are fairy tales, how is cutting a child off from fairy tales cutting the child off from reality? Because any fairy tale worth its salt is actually ultimately going to be about the ultimately real. And to, to prevent children to, do, to, to, to engage in these things is literally to make that child now uh, the, uh, vulnerable to propaganda. But is it, Chesson is talking about 1934, around there here. Is this kind of prudery happening today? And if so, in what form? It, this is basically what he's talking about here with these this new prudery or, or, or the new Puritans uh, is the cancel culture. Yes. Uh, it's actually very prophetic of where we are almost 90 years later. You know, the pure Puritan is not so grim and negative and repressive as the pure progressive, he says in the first paragraph. And at the end of that paragraph, um, that the Puritans were like perfect freedom compared with the terrorism and rigidity of, of its new taboos. Um, and then again on page 235, um, beginning of that new paragraph there, the intellectual interest of this bit of bigotry lies in this, that the new philosophies and new religions and new social systems cannot draw up their own plans for emancipating mankind without still further enslaving mankind. I mean, it really is, this is a work of prophecy about the cancel culture. He could see that progressivism was a type of Puritanism and it would cancel anything which, which was contrary to its religion. That's right. But That's what, what kind of, I mean, what kind of cultural inhibitions are there, you know, exhortations for you as a parent, both of you as parents, what are you to trying to protect your children from? What, what, what does the world tell you? To, I mean, he's saying it was fairy tales and fighting and religion. But what is it now? It is still those things, actually. Not fairy tales? Yes. So, for example, um, uh, the Common Core uh, educational movement, or whatever you want to call it, um, they wanted to gut... Now, I, I don't object to teaching math and science. Of course not. Math and science are, are useful things. But they were deliberately gutting literature and fiction as being not useful and replacing those titles with, um, with nonfiction as if that were superior and taking a step further. I read a column in the Wall Street Journal a, a couple months ago, a school teacher who, who showed up to get the books for her class and the storeroom with all the books, all the literature that she'd been using to teach the last couple of decades was gone. And all she could get was nonfiction tracks on racism and, uh, and you know, other forms of prejudice and capitalism and all these things. And, and she actually asked, what happened to all the literature? Oh, oh we're not teaching that anymore. You know, you can't you can't give people fiction that will actually get them to explore what it means to be a human being. Uh, we just need to indoctrinate children into this new religion, this cancel culture. People, people are not allowed to think outside the ideological box. And obviously, humanities enable them to do that, give them the tools to do that. So if you want people to be ideologically 
brainwashed, you have to take away the tools with which they can question the ideologies. So it it's, it's make, makes absolute sense that the past and that all the fruits and benefits of the past have to be cancelled. They have to be got rid of so we can have this tabula rasa with which they can write on the brains of our children. Well, I remember having this thought years ago, post-television and prior internet, that we watched, and at that time, they, they said the average amount of hours per day spent before television, it was eight. Now, I, I don't know if that's true or not, but I know people spend a lot of time. We had TV dinners, especially prepared so you could eat while watching television. The point is, a television screen is a box, right? And it's a box which almost totally excludes the supernatural. I mean, you can create any kind of a story you want, uh, an interworldly story, and make it come out any way you want. But how many times did we see someone praying? Or, you know, it's not exciting to watch, I suppose. But, I mean, how, many, how often do we see the transcendent side of life being presented on this very limited screen? Very rarely. And so I think there was almost an implicit uh, constraint on education by the television where you're only allowed to see things which could be presented in a very material way. Now, the positive side of that was that I remember I used to watch movies. When there was a war movie, you always had a Catholic chaplain if there was a religious person in it at all. Why is that? Well, it's, it's visual, right? And the church has sacraments and they got vestments and, you know, incense and candles. Whereas, you know, our, God, our good brothers and sisters, they got a Bible, but it's not as cinematically you know, effective as having uh, all the other accoutrements. Anything more on the new prudery? Well, I think I think we're probably there. All right. Well, in that case, we will next week discuss several essays, or at least one, beginning with "On the Return of the Barbarian," and this is Lewis in 1934 talking about Hitler and. Is he a prophet or not? Mm-hmm. All right. Thanks, everyone. God bless you all. We'll see you next week at the Formed Book Club. If you enjoyed this discussion, please help spread the word about the Formed Book Club by subscribing to the podcast and writing a review. You can sign up for weekly updates at formedbookclub.ignatius.com.